The internet has transformed the way our society functions, connects, and communicates. Digital technologies allow us the freedom to express ourselves and connect with others to champion for change, putting the power of free speech in the hands of regular people. But by the same token, the internet can also be used to promote hateful ideologies that can lead to real-world harm. The question is, is it false to categorize free speech online as only good or bad? How should we harness the democratizing power of free speech on the internet while protecting people from harm? Welcome to Let's Talk About the Internet, a conversation about the future of the internet in Canada. This podcast is part of a partnership between Facebook Canada and The Walrus. We're exploring the future of the internet. I'm your host, Mohit Rajans. Tamara Small is an associate professor at the University of Guelph in the Department of Political Science. Tamara says that digital technologies themselves are not responsible for protecting or harming our society. What's more important is the ways in which we use them. Back in June, she addressed these issues at the Walrus Talks at Home, the future of speech online. I'll be talking to Tamara about this, but first, let's have a listen to that talk. Hi, my name is Tamara Small. I'm an associate professor at the University of Guelph in the Department of Political Science. So even though the topic of this panel, the future of speech online, isn't a question, I think questions are embedded in it. So what do we do with online speech? How do we fix it? So I want to start my remarks right now to think back to two key moments that have happened in the last two years. So first, I want to go back to May 2020. And I want to remind you of the bystander video of the fatal arrest of George Floyd by the Minneapolis police. This eight minute video was shared and watched by millions of people and it changed the world. This viral video was instrumental in the resurgence of the hashtag Black Lives Matter. It brought discussions of anti-Black racism and social justice to everyday conversations and sparked protests across the world. My second moment comes from January 6th this year with the US Capitol Hill insurrection, where a mob of supporters for the former president attempted to disrupt the joint session of Congress assembled to count the electoral votes. As the story goes, there was widespread misinformation about voter fraud that was shared on social media from even from the highest levels. Online groups were instrumental in allowing those supporters to communicate, to share, and to organize what happened on January 6th. Those two moments are interesting for a number of reasons within the context of American politics. But as a digital politics scholar, someone who's interested in the use of digital technologies by political actors, institutions, and citizens, what's really interesting to me is about the intersection between digital technologies and democracy. So one of the questions that scholars like myself have been looking at for the last 20 years is the extent to which digital technologies support or threaten democratic practice. So when we look at the George Floyd situation, people see it as an example of the power of digital technologies. People see the video as a tool of transparency. They see it as a tool to allow marginalized groups to participate more fully in society. When we look at the Capitol Hill riots, it's the worst of digital technologies. They argue that digital technologies have created a post-truth environment where echo chambers allow people to avoid topics, arguments, and people in which they disagree. But what is interesting to me 
about these two very interesting moments is it's the same technology, right? The same technology. So digital technologies allow for the accessing and sharing of a lot of information. Some of that information is really good and some of it is really, really terrible. Digital technologies allow for communities to form. Some of those communities are positive and productive, others less so. And so I invite you to keep these two juxtaposing moments in mind when you consider the future of speech online. In general, I'm making an argument against technological determinism, that things are good or bad because of digital technologies. And I don't want to suggest that technology is neutral. At the same time, I would argue that digital technologies in and of themselves change a lot of things when it comes to democracy. Rather, I have argued elsewhere that digital technologies create affordances and opportunities for individuals and institutions. And that these institutions and individuals in turn uh, make choices how to incorporate digital technologies into their activities. These choices are structured not only by the politics and their objectives, but by the political, social, and economic context in which they operate. So returning to the questions implicit in the panel, the future of free speech online, what do we do with free speech? How do we fix it? So I invite you to think of one more question. How do we address the very worst of digital technologies without cannibalizing the very best of them? That's Tamara Small speaking at the Walrus Talks at Home, the future of speech online. She joins me now to talk more about the role of online speech in our society. Thanks for joining us, Tamara. Thanks for having me. You know, you brought up so many interesting points in the speech you gave for the Walrus Talks, and you mentioned how many people view the internet in binary terms, sort of this idea of whether it's good or bad. How do you feel like we've gotten to this point where people view the internet through such different lenses? Honestly, it's always been like that. So from the very beginning of sort of people looking at this, the very start place was that this was going to be great for democracy. And then as we started moving forward, the response was, wait a second, maybe we're just jumping on the bandwidth and maybe this is technological determinism. And so lots of people started to think the opposite view, which was, let's think about the ways that this might be not so great for democracy. And these two binaries, and we see them throughout the literature in a number of ways, uh, have existed for almost 30 years with the technology. And so do you feel like this aspect really is the precursor for some of the stuff that we are uh, witnessing right now? You mentioned in the talk examples of how online speech is creating community and polarization in the U.S. Is there a difference on how online speech is influencing democracy in Canada compared to the U.S.? You know, I'm a political scientist, so I am always sort of thinking about how technology fits into the political system in which we live in. And so I'm from the view that the politics shapes the technology, not the other way around. There are probably people who would disagree with me on that perspective. And so in terms of polarization, I think that Canada has, has significantly less, I'm not going to say no polarization, but it has a different sort of level of polarization 
than the United States. And I think that we see that come through in different ways. And so it's not as if it's not there. People are not using technology in similar ways. It's just that the way that our party system works, the way that our institution works will also help to shape the way that the technology is operating in Canada, which will be different than in the United States, which will be different than the United Kingdom, which would be different than in China. Sure. And we can't be ignorant to the fact that many of the countries that you mentioned actually uh, have the largest population of internet and social media users. And so it's very important for us to be able to understand that we have uh, very particular needs within this country. And we also have like several generations of users from all different demographics using the internet. What excites you about how they're using digital technology in various demographics to form communities and to speak with one another online? Well, it's really interesting. We're, we all sort of hit technology at the places that we're at. And so our sort of youngest Canadians will be using some of the more interesting new dynamic technologies. Uh, our older Canadians will might be using the more sort of the longer term ones. So in some ways, I think, you know, and again, maybe I'm just sort of hypothesizing here, but it's sort of like we start to use the technology at where we are and only a few new ones might be joining into our stratosphere. And so, you know, in terms of digital politics, it's always a bit of a struggle to study because you never kind of know what is going to be the next big thing and then who it's going to be the next big thing for, right? And so, you know, Twitter and Facebook seem to be, especially Twitter, seem to be really important for a certain part of politics, but other technologies, other communities will be important for other parts of politics that will not be sort of elite dominated and might be more sort of local communities. Where is there an untapped potential for using digital technologies to help create a more equitable and inclusive future for Canadians? I guess where I would start would be thinking about the difference between different types of politics. So there's elite politics, so a politics in which politicians, parties, governments, perhaps very large institutional interest groups would be in. And that, for better or for worse, tends to be really top down in terms of the way that they use technology. On the other side is the side of technology that is more bottom up. And that's in some ways really spontaneous. It's not driven by and it's driven by the things that it's driven by, right? And so right. sometimes... It could be moments, it could be cultural shifts, it could be the economy, it could be what's happening in life, right? Exactly, exactly, right? And so, I mean, the pandemic, Black Lives Matter, uh, Me Too are all examples of these moments where, you know, as someone who's interested in digital politics, you don't know it's important until, you know, three days later when there's like a zillion tweets about this thing or the hashtag has been used this many times and you're like, oh, this is something that's a big deal. And, you know, we weren't aware until, you know, a couple days later. And so that sort of stuff you can't really be prepared for, as you point out. Like, it will just be these sort of moments in time that lead to individual people using technology in interesting ways. And one of the things that I've always wondered about, and I don't really have a great answer about, is this idea of whether or not this creates community or not. Is it just a bunch of individual moments coming together that makes it look like a community or is it an actual community um, that has those kind of bonds? And certainly in some of these social movement literature, there is this sort of belief that digital politics doesn't have that kind of bond, that sort of physical presence creates between people. You know, so when a person goes out to protest and they're with other people, that creates a bond of community that may or may not happen by individual people 
using a hashtag me too. And it's, so I'm always sort of wondering right. um, about yeah. that. What does the like on a post enforce? Is that your activism or is that showing support or is that because you're scrolling and it seems like the right thing to do? Exactly. But as a whole, it does create this thing that is, you know, can be really significant. I think Me Too, Black Lives Matter, when you have this many people doing it for whatever the reason being, it creates a moment in which policymakers, the media, all of those people can't ignore the object, which is fascinating. Yes, of course, because it comes with the other side of it, too, which is when people want to bring attention to something that's being ignored from various parts of the world in order to reach a different audience, right? So I, I find it fascinating that how far reaching some of these tools can really extend. How can Canadians ensure they're using the power of their voice online in ways that reduce harm and promote more of a healthier online environment? I think sort of, you know, the lessons that we all sort of, you know, in our work life, which is to think before you tweet, to think before you send, because technology has that seductive sort of in the moment response to things. And, you know, this has always been one of the things that we've always been wondering about is, you know, would someone say that if they were in, in person with people? Right. Right. And that's one of the things that we all need to sort of think about. And one of the things I often like to say to my students is that I think there's there's a sense of false privacy around many parts of the Internet that I think that if people thought about it a bit more, they probably would be a bit more circumspect in the way that they're talking about. So and what I mean by that is certainly I'm not talking about like the dark web, all that kind of stuff. But the idea is that even in your Facebook communities, your Twitter communities with people who you like or that you know, there might be someone who doesn't appreciate this thing and is making note of it and, and not in sort of some sort of nefarious way. But one of the things I always find really fascinating as someone who studies sort of elite uses of technology is the fact that in every election that I've ever studied, there's been a person whose old tweets come up, you know, of something that they've said. Right. And this is because those tweets, yes, they're in some sort of private, what we think is private, but it's not that private. Yes, they're bounded, but they're not private. Sure. I mean... It's also interesting to think about the length of usage. If you were somebody who was using social media in 2007 when you were in high school, uh, where you've come to be now as a graduate in your field is an entirely different person. And so the digital footprint that you're referring to is very interesting to monitor, especially from a Canadian perspective, because in some cases it might discourage for people from being active altogether because they're worried about that potential backlash in the future by attaching themselves to something, you know? So for that, like what advice would you offer someone who's interested in becoming more involved in political activism? I mean, there's so many venues. I mean, I think the thing that is wonderful about the internet is that if you want to know more about like politics or otherwise, it's all there for you. And so if you can use the internet, I advise, you know, part of it is about learning and it's about learning about other people. And I guess maybe if I have some advice, it's also about learning about people who don't aren't like you and might not have similar opinions to you. I think one of the concerns that lots of people who have who study the Internet is this idea of echo chambers, the idea of people closing off themselves to opinions, ideas that don't sort of fit into their worldview. And democracy requires us to at least I'm not saying you have to like it. But some awareness of it, some you know awareness of those perspectives, those people, um, those ideas, and hopes that they can provide full context. And so 
you know, isolating yourself within a community in which everyone feels the same, believes the same, looks the same. That's a disappointing part of, I think, the digital environment in terms of politics. Right. And it also uh, breeds a little bit more of that uh, understanding of misinformation sometimes, right? Because when you're, for instance, in a WhatsApp group that is with seven to eight or nine like-minded people, chances are you will share information that one of you thinks is vetted and interesting and, you know, it might spin out of control beyond what you think is harmful. So I think you're 100% right in being able to diversify your own focus points when it comes to social media gives you a way better outlook as to what's really happening in the world. While we are starting to get a little bit more of a grip on uh, various social media related issues, I wonder if you think in 30 years from now that we, we're going to look back at our the way we use speech online in 2021 and how do you think the future generations will view this era we're currently in and are we leaving a good path ahead? It's so difficult to know with digital technologies because it's driven by so many factors, one of which is technological innovation by private companies. And so what the next it technology is going to be who knows what it's going to be? And, you know, when we think about, I'll use misinformation, and in some ways that's a result of a certain type of technology that didn't exist in the early parts of the internet, right? When we just had websites and email, yes, it was always possible for misinformation and disinformation to occur, but it was more difficult. The technology didn't exist for that. But the idea of social media that allowed for bounded communities individual connections with people who either you knew or you didn't know, the technology allowed for that to sort of be available. And so we didn't see this coming, those people who've been studying this for this period of time. And so what will be the case going forward will also be, I think, structured by the type of technology that comes out in the future, which again, I think, you know, this move to more visual in technology compared to more text in technology, you know, that will shift in ways that I'm not sure that I can wrap my head around at this point in time. At the same time, I think the other issue will be whether or not regulation gets serious, if that's, you know, if that's possible. We've been at a turning point for maybe the last five years at the relationship between regulation and technology. But certainly Mm -hmm. governments around the world in various capacities are attempting to find ways to regulate the technology in ways that doesn't dampen what is amazing about that. And at the same time, and I'll point out, and you know, I'm not a scholar, I don't do a lot of work outside of sort of liberal Western democracies, but we do know that in other countries, those authoritarian regimes find very easy ways of dampening, you know, connection and community through technological means. So it's possible, but we, you know, I think in the West, we want to find that balance between reducing what we see as the biggest harms of technology while, well, A, allowing those companies to make money and move forward, but also keeping the things that we think are really positive about technology, which is a place for people to express themselves, a place for people to meet with other people that they uh, may not live near and all of these great things. But finding that balance between regulation and community and, and, and the great parts of the internet, is, is, it's, a, it's a tough one. And I don't think that we've remotely squared the circle in liberal democracies. It's interesting because that leads me to a sort of off script question as well about where's the government's role in accessibility online and making people more accountable to actually being 
accessible to all different uh, needs with various internet resources? Are we going to be leaning on the government for getting uh, online voting into the norm for this country? How do you feel about the tools that come with our everyday lives, uh, you know, and the importance of that when people are looking at even being active and petitioning for more and, and asking for more? How do you feel about using the internet that way? So it's, I guess it's an interesting thing because again, it's, as I said before, I think that in some ways there might be a bit of a gap between sort of elite uses of the technology and everyday uses of the technology that become political. And again, sometimes I think that those everyday uses filter into the elite uses, but often I think that they're in some ways, I think it's really easy for our political elites to sort of ignore those types of things if they want to, because it's very diffuse. It's not directed to particular individuals. There's lots of arguments can be made about, do we know these people are Canadian or not? Um, and so I think at times politicians, it's very easy to sort of sort of say that the stuff that's on the internet is not you know representative of Canadians' views. But I guess, if, I mean, you know, maybe I'll, I'll answer this question a different way. If someone were to ask me, I was only allowed to use one technology to try or one approach to engage with politicians and elites, what technology would it be? I would probably not say use the internet. You know, protests might be a more useful thing. Hiring a PR person might be, right? And again, I'm not suggesting that it's ever just one or the other. Um, but I think that politicians respond to certain types of cues. And I think that the internet has lots of ways Lots of individual ways in which politicians can avoid those things unless they become really massive. Where do you think the data that's being accumulated by politicians about the needs of their various communities, where does that become of use? Is it of use? Is it something that we should expect future politicians to uh, use as a prime source for platforms? So, so I think that politicians, politics is very data-driven, but it, it's data-driven in proprietary ways. So we as political scientists don't know what the black box is, but our sense is, is that politicians are making use of all sorts of data that they are able to have access to, but then they're using it in ways to, I'm never quite sure. I don't want to suggest that politicians are sort of making platforms to the data, but at the same time, they kind of always have, right? What's that? They kind of always have. We're just talking about it. They always kind of have. They just have better data. And I think the difference is, I think it goes the opposite way, which is the, let's see if we can give the message that we want to give to the right people. Ah. Right? So they're using the data in the same way that Nike is using the data to make sure that the right people get the right shoes, right? Right. We just did some work for a paper, a graduate student, a former graduate student of mine who's at Carleton. You know, we were just looking at the Facebook ad library from the last election, and we were looking at where the parties were targeting their ads. And our conclusions are not surprising, but it was interesting to see it in visual, how clearly they targeted British Columbia, Ontario, and Quebec. Like this was the campaign online, but in Facebook. Mm. And, you know, again, if you think about the amount of seats that were in those ridings. Yeah, it's definitely targeted. Right. And it's, so it's about making sure that they're able to say, okay, what kind of messages do we have that we think are going to be appealing to those mass people in those places? And in some cases, we suspect, we, or it looks as if we can't tell totally with the data, but definitely 
they're getting down to the writing level, right? Some of the, some of the, um, you know, the ads that we saw are ads that are just for very small parts of the electorates, which is really interesting. Well, that's the promise, right? That's the yeah. promise that social media companies kind of throw out there to advertisers uh, in general, which is the, we can micro target to the places you need to be. But that being said, you know, there's so much to cover. I, I honestly feel like the idea of what digital politics is in Canada is an entire sort of uh, linear show in itself. Um, because it taps into so many ways that people, unfortunately, some of the only ways that people stay connected with politics is through online. I don't think I've had a politician come to my door in years, and I live in a suburb. So I think you're doing great work, and I can't wait to continue to listen to more of what you have to say, because the type of thought leadership that you're bringing into the mix right now is much needed and probably going to be studied for years to come. So definitely thank you so much for joining us here today, Tamara, and uh, thank you for being a part of this. Thanks so much. It's been a great conversation. Tamara Small is an associate professor at the University of Guelph in the Department of Political Science. You can find out more about her work on her website, tamarasmall.wordpress.com. This podcast is part of a partnership between Facebook Canada and The Walrus. I'm your host, Mohit Rajans. Thank you to producer Jason Herterick, who helped put together this episode. Keep a lookout on your favorite podcast feed for our next episode, where we'll explore the power of petitioning for change online. 